children can head out to junior church at this time. We are going to be going to first, no, Second Samuel chapter 13 here in just a moment. Second Samuel chapter 13. If you're looking in the notes, I would alert you that I had that listed wrong. I had first Samuel. We are in second Samuel. We've been looking at scriptures about people in the Bible in the Old Testament. We've been looking at forgotten lives in the Old Testament. And we've talked about many different people, haven't we? We've talked about, well, actually, who are some of the Old Testament characters and names that we've talked about over the past two months or so? Um, shout them out. Saul. We've talked about Esau. We talked about Esau. Who? Achan. Yes, Achan. Anybody else? Abigail. We talked about Abigail. What does Abigail mean? What did you say? Daughter of Steve. Daughter of Steve. Yes. <laughs> Abigail means daughter of Steve. Uh, <laughs> Abigail means joy to the father. Joy to the father. We talked about Abigail last week. We, we talked to something of the father. Good job, Bobby. You tried. We talked about Abigail. We talked about Abraham. We've talked about many others of the Old Testament characters. And um, we're going to continue today talking about Absalom. Absalom, the son who led the insurrection, the son who led the insurrection. As we get into Absalom, actually as we get into the word of God, I have something that I read that I would like to share with you. Abram Lincoln, you know, President Lincoln, we all know him, right? Um, Abram Lincoln once, uh, once asked an audience, how many legs a dog has if you count the tail as a leg? When they answered five, Lincoln told them that the answer was four. The fact that you called the tail a leg does not make it a leg. Isn't that correct? We can call something whatever we want. There still is truth. We can believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It does not make it equal 5. It still equals 3, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, 2 plus 2. Anyways, there is absolute truth. And we go to the Word of God. We go to look at truth as it is doesn't matter what you want, want to believe truth is. Truth is truth no matter what. Truth is objective. It's not subjective. So we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 13 in a minute, but first let me set this up. You know, I'm not one who cries in public. I'm not one who cries much at all, actually. I can be pretty stoic, and I generally hold my emotions in check and try pretty carefully to do so. It's not to say I do not have emotions. I just keep them in check. Given my thoughts on tears, I found this little, little article from GQ magazine interesting. GQ had a humorous analysis on when guys should or should not be allowed by society to shed tears, all right? So guys, listen up. This is really important for you. It, this person wrote, male crying is not new, the female author notes. It's been happening for as long as men have had eyeballs. But it was almost always done behind at least three closed doors. Here are some of GQ's rules about public crying for men. It's okay to cry if you're in extreme pain. Like, say, a piano were dropped from a 50-story window on your foot. <laughs> if you're going to cry for pain, it has to be at least an eight on the pain scale for a guy, okay? It's also okay to cry at certain works of art or film. For instance, if you don't get misty eyes at the end of Toy Story 3, you're a real monster, according to, this, according to this author. It's almost weird if you don't sob the first time you hold your newborn baby. 
No shame in that, bro. It's definitely weird if you sob during a sports event. Although, you can cry if you're actually one of the athletes out there on the field. But even then, you should cry only if you win. And if you're just a fan, the rule here is much simpler. Never, ever cry. And I like this final one. Never, ever cry during an argument. As the woman who wrote the article notes, sorry guys, but crying during an argument is kind of our thing. That's, that, that's what this woman wrote. As we look at Absalom, and as we jump into Absalom here, we see two people who were quite emotional. Actually, when you read through the Old Testament, we see that the Hebrew people could weep, and weep quite loudly. They were way more emotional than it seems like we Americans are. And David, King David, the mighty king of Israel, Israel was an emotional man. And he was emotional about Absalom. And Absalom was emotional about his father. But they couldn't come together. They could not come together and deal with each other. David loved Absalom. David loved Absalom. And he cared for him. But he would not tell him that. During this whole account, as we look at 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18, during this whole account, there are multiple times where it says that David loved Absalom. David longed to go to Absalom, but he wouldn't do it. He just would not do it. Absalom wanted his father's respect in relationship. But David did not let that happen. David, we will see, was by many accounts an absent father. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapters. I'm sorry, I made a mistake again. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18 as we talk about Absalom. This is a large section of scripture. So I'm going to summarize a lot of it and I'm going to read, read parts of it as well. I will read parts of the chapters as we summarize Absalom's life. Here's my theme. Absalom, the son who led the insurrection. Absalom is the son who led the insurrection. He, he, he took over the kingdom from his father. His father had been reigning for some 32 years. The mighty king of Israel had conquered many of Israel's neighbors. And his son takes the kingdom away. And let me to put this in context. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 13. This means that David has risen to the throne. David has expanded Israel's borders, conquering many local city-states. David has taken many wives and he's fathered many children. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, two chapters before this, David had an affair with Bathsheba. And he had her husband killed in battle. If you look at 2 Samuel 11, David has an affair with Bathsheba. And then to cover up his sin... David goes to great lengths to cover up the sin. And so to cover up the sin, he has one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, killed in battle. Seems like that man was also a friend of David. And David had him killed in battle. What we are going to talk about today is an indirect consequence of David's sins. After David sinned with Bathsheba, God tells him, your kingdom's going to be taken from you. It's going to be divided later. There are consequences for what you do. And that's still true today, by the way. It's still true today that there are consequences, direct and indirect, for our sins. It's never isolated. Never isolated. One chapter before this, in 2 Samuel 12, David was rebuked by the prophet Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba. And let me hand it to Nathan the prophet to go to King David, the mighty king of Israel at this point, and rebuke him 
took a lot of guts. David was acting like any other pagan king, taking a woman that he wanted, doing what he wanted to do. And Nathan came in great boldness, a servant of the Lord. And he tells a little story to David, which you should read later on. I encourage you to. And David's upset by the story. And Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. You're the person who did this. And David is repentant. This is the context in which we look at 2 Samuel 13. However, we also need to set the table. We need to consider Absalom's birth. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, there's a listing of some of David's children. And it says, And his, which is David's, and his second child, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. We read about Abigail last week. And the third, the third child is Absalom, the son of Maccah, the daughter of Telmai, king of Geshur. Get this. Absalom was the grandson of another local king. Absalom is the son of King David and the grandson of another king, the king of Geshur. And that's important. That's gonna, we're going to come back to that. So let's look at the first episode of Absalom. What's the first episode of what Absalom does? Starting in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we have the rape of Tamar by Amnon. Amnon would be Absalom's older brother. Really, Amnon was a half-brother to Absalom because David had many wives and many concubines. David had Saul's harem. David fathered many children by many different women. So Amnon is the half-brother of Absalom and the half-brother of Tamar. Amnon loved or thought he loved his half-sister Tamar. So Amnon develops a ruse in order to get Tamar with him, and he rapes her. But Tamar is the sister of Absalom. Absalom hears about this, and he is very angry, and rightfully so. Tamar is his sister, and he wants justice in this matter. David hears about this, and guess what? David is angry too. But guess what David does? Nothing. David refuses to act. He does not do anything. So guess what? Two years pass by. Two years pass by and nothing happens. Absalom develops a plan. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 18 through 29, Absalom has Amnon killed. He develops a ruse to get Amnon here. This is what one writes about this. Absalom took his dejected sister into his own house, expecting his father, David, to punish Amnon for his incestuous act. After two years of suppressed rage and hatred, Absalom plotted his own revenge. He gave a feast for King David and his princes at his country estate, although David did not attend. Again, David was absent. He did not attend. Amnon did, and Amnon was murdered by Absalom's servants after Absalom got him drunk. Then, afraid of King David's anger, guess what? Absalom fled across the Jordan River to King Talmai of Geshur, his mother's father. So Absalom goes to this other local king, his grandfather's place, and we see that Absalom is there with Geshur for three years, the home of his maternal grandfather. David cared about Absalom, but he didn't do anything. Look at verses 37 through 39. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahad, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. That's verse 37. David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. Verse 39. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom. 
for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. It's now been five years since the initial rape, two years of nothing, and now Absalom goes there for three years, and David did nothing. David longed for him, but David could not deal with his emotions. He could not go and try to restore the relationship with Absalom. So, in chapter 14, Joab, David's military commander, works with a woman from Tekoa to tell a story to David and get Absalom recalled. She, they make up a story. It's been five years since the rape. Absalom is recalled, but David says he does not want to see him. You hear it again? David is still absent. Five years now, David won't see him. Sure, bring him back to Jerusalem. Bring him back to Israel, but I'm not going to see him. In 2 Samuel uh, 14, 25-33, we have some extra detail about Absalom's family. And we hear about Absalom's hair. And that is important later. Look at verses 25 through 26. Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no defect in him. I'm sure this is a little bit hyperbole, but basically they are saying that nobody is as good looking, as handsome, as tall as Absalom. Remember King Saul? Saul was a head taller than everybody else. He was the people's choice. The people apparently would have liked Absalom too. Verse 26. When he, which is Absalom, cut the hair of his head. It was at the end of every year that he cut it. For it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. So there even makes mention of Absalom's hair. And that's going to come up again in a little bit. Absalom is recalled, but King David still would not see Absalom. Look at verse 24. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Isn't that amazing? King David longed for Absalom. King David loved Absalom. That's been stated, but King David will not go and make restitution and see his own son. So Absalom manipulated things. To see the king, his father. David and Absalom see each other, but it's just going through the motions. If you look at verses 28 through 33, I'm going to read those next. It says, Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem. Two years. This is seven years since the initial incident, okay? Seven years have passed now. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. By the way, Joab is David's military commander. He's the five-star general or four-star general, the general Patton of David, okay? And so Absalom sends for Joab. So uh, he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Verse 30. Therefore he said to his servants, Absalom said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Job arose and came to Absalom to his house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Think about that. That's, that's Job's crop. That's money for Job. That's food for Job. And it's all burned up. It's all set on fire. This is Absalom's way of manipulating things. Absalom answered Job, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king. So why have I come from Geshur? It'd be better for me still to be there. Get this. Absalom came back from Geshur and his grandfather so that he could be with his, with his closer family. But Absalom's saying, my father won't even see me. 
I might as well be in Geshur where I was before. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there is iniquity in me, iniquity, be, uh, that would be gross sin, let him put me to death. So when Job came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus, he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And he kissed Absalom. David and Absalom have a reunion here, so to speak, but it's just a formality. They don't make up their, rec- their uh, they don't reconcile their relationship. It's just a formality. Starting in chapter 15, the insurrection begins. This is, if this was a movie and it'd be a good movie to be made, uh, if this was a movie, this is where it would start to pick up. This is where the action would really begin. Now, starting in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15, Absalom meets with people who wanted to meet with the king and stole away the hearts of the people. Absalom would, would, would sit at the gate of Jerusalem. And as people came in, people were coming in to see King David. And Absalom would see them instead. And Absalom would steal away the hearts of the people of Jerusalem. One writes, within four years of his reinstatement, Absalom sought to assert his claim of succession and cunningly prepared to revolt against his father's throne probably during the 32nd year of David's reign. That's very important. David has been reigning for some 32 years, or close to 32 years. He's about to lose it because of his son, and because of his own faults, by the way, as an absent father. In 2 Samuel 15, 7-12, we see Absalom's plan to take over the kingdom. Next, in verses 13-37, through 37, David flees Jerusalem. Absalom comes into Jerusalem. Psalm 3, by the way, Psalm 3 is written about this in David's lifetime. David actually was so heartbroken over this, he wrote psalms about it. David is cursed in chapter 16 by Shemiah, a member of Saul's family as he flees. How amazing is this? The mighty king of Israel is fleeing by his own son. King David expanded Israel's borders more than any other king, more than any other king ever. And now he's fleeing because of his own son. King David conquered Jerusalem. Do you realize that? Jerusalem wasn't even conquered until King David conquered it and made it the capital, the city where the Lord would have his name. That was David. And it was very strategic too, by the way, because Jerusalem is higher in elevation than all the other areas of Israel. It will always say they go up to Jerusalem. King David conquered Jerusalem, established it there, and now Absalom is making him flee. It's very interesting as you get into 16, chapter 16, verses 15 through 23. Absalom enters Jerusalem and he sleeps with David's concubines on the roof of the palace. Now, this was supposed to be a sign to all the people. When the people, they set up a tent, so it's not totally public. When they set up a tent, they set up a tent on the roof, and this is showing everybody that Absalom has taken over the kingdom. He goes into David's concubines, everybody knows. That he has taken over the kingdom. By the way, though, what's very interesting about this is this man Ahithopol. Ahithopol was David's counselor. But when Absalom starts to take over the kingdom, Ahithopol turns sides. And he becomes Absalom's counselor. Ahithopol tells Absalom to do this. But Ahithopol is also Bathsheba's grandfather. And Absalom is going on the same roof where David walked out on and saw Bathsheba and had an affair with her and, and killed Bathsheba's husband. That's the same roof, roof 
where Absalom is going to go into the concubines. And that was Ahithophel's counsel. It's almost like Ahithophel is saying, yeah, you did this once, David. This is going back on you now. The insurrection is not over yet. As we get in chapter 17, Hushai is used to counter Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom. And this leads to Ahithophel killing himself. So David had another man named Hushai. And Hushai was sent in as a spy. This is where the movie would really get good. Hushai is sent in as a spy. And he's going to counter Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom. Ahithophel gives very wise counsel. But Absalom trusts Hushai instead. And because of this, Ahithophel is distraught. And he goes and kills himself. As we get into chapter 17, verses 15 through 29, there are preparations for the battle. Hushai sends news of Absalom's plan to David, who now has time to mobilize his army. See, David had a spy, and the spy sends the news. David knows what's going to happen. David is going to mobilize an army. And then in verses 24 through 26, Absalom appoints Amasa to command the Israelite army in place of Joab. Joab has been David's military commander. Joab is a very wise and very bold uh, commander of the Israelite army. Absalom, Absalom no longer has Joab. Absalom needs his own commander. He needs his own uh, 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 General Lee, so to speak, because David still has General Grant, if we put it in Civil War terms here. So uh, Absalom replaces Joab. And then we have the rendezvous. In verses 27 through 29 of chapter 17, three friends of David, Shobai, Macher, and Brazili, bring him and his soldiers food in the wilderness. And that leads us to the battle. Here is the culmination. Here is the battle. In chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, we find out that David wanted to lead the troops in battle. David is a mighty warrior. But the people urge him. The people say, David, you shouldn't go. You need to stay back. You, if you go, you will be a distraction. They will want to kill you. They're going to go after you. But listen to this. David asked Joab to deal gently with Absalom. David asked him with witnesses to deal gently with Absalom. So we come to verses 9 through 15. Let me read those. Chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. For Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. Isn't this ironic? I, I, I think we have to at least chuckle when we read this, right? Verse 10. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who had told him, you know, because Absalom was just hanging out, you know. <laughs> so Absalom, so Joab, Joab told him. Joab said, Behold, um, they, he told him. So Joab told the man, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. He would have got the ten pieces of silver and I guess the belt, like when you read a, win a boxing match or the wrestling, you know, get the big belt buckle, or maybe it's a country western thing back in that day and age. But he would get a belt. Verse 12, the man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For, listen to this, in our hearing... The king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, 
then you yourself would have stood aloof. Okay? He heard what David had said. David said, deal gently with Absalom. Verse 14. Then Job said, I will not waste my time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Job's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. So now Absalom is just uh, more than just three spears. He's just hit again and again, and he is dead, okay? So we come to chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. News reaches the king that Absalom is dead. Once again, once again, King David did love him. Listen to the David's reaction. Listen to David's reaction in verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. David cared about Absalom, but he could not take the time earlier to have a good relationship with his son. And that's the end of the insurrection. Let's make some applications here. Oh, by the way, Joab totally disobeyed David. And when Solomon takes over the throne, Joab is then replaced because of that. So let's make some applications. David did not discipline his son or children. He ignored the problems. We must discipline our children when there is a problem. We see that in 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14. We must stand for truth and justice, even with adults, as much as we can. We cannot ignore things. We cannot just brush it under the rug and hope it's going to go away. That's an application here. It seems that David was likely an absent father. David has so many children by different women and likely was not present. And, and, and I like how Chuck Swindoll sums that up. So let me read these words from Chuck Swindoll. Twenty years transpired between 2 Samuel 3 and 13. David's kingdom grew, and the friends who remained loyal to him during his humble days in the wilderness began to reap the rewards of their devotion. The Bible calls him the 30, as you may remember from the first chapter, which was the first chapter of a book by Swindoll. Eliam gave his beautiful daughter in marriage to Uriah, a fellow member of this elite band of brothers. And David gave Uriah an estate just behind the palace. David also gave Eliam's father an important role as one of his chief advisors, secretary of state in his royal cabinet, if you will. His name was Ahithophel, another name which we already talked about, by the way. During those 20 years, David remained exceptionally busy. David defeated the Philistines, conquering Moab, Edom, Ammon, and Aram. David also wiped out a number of massive invading armies. And when David wasn't conquering or building, he was lost in the endless affairs of state. Much of his time was spent in secret council chambers, making decisions concerning war, diplomacy, building, taxation, administration. The remainder was spent in travel, on parades, giving speeches, and making appearances in one venue after another. David, this is important, David had too many wives and too many children to have much of an influence on any of them, except by accident. David helped conceive lots of children, but he helped rear none of them. Swindoll says, I count eight wives who are named, a number of unnamed wives who bore him children, and no fewer than ten concubines. Then each of the named wives has at least one child, though Michael had none. She had her father, King Saul's temperament, which may explain her remaining barren. 
We must be present as parents and servants of Christ. And this isn't just for parents. We must be present with nieces, nephews, grandchildren, neighbors, you know, friends, co-workers. We must be present and don't just brush them under the rug. The other more of the story, men, is one wife is enough. <laughs> David had all these wives. His polygamy is never blessed. Seriously, polygamy is never blessed in the scripture. It always causes problems, and it does here as well. We must be present with our important relationships. David was reluctant to pursue restoring the relationship with Absalom. We must try to restore relationships. Matthew 5, 23 and following, Jesus says, if you realize you're coming to worship and you realize that you've sinned against somebody, you go and correct that before coming to worship. Restoration is more important than worship. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if you, if, if you believe you've been sinned against, you go and talk to them individually. David ignored problems. David did not restore the relationship. What Absalom did was not right, but there's onus on David as well. Absalom tried to bring about justice on his own. We must never try to take the law into our own hands. Romans 13 tells us just to be submissive to governing authorities. Unless there's a conflict with uh, God's law in the world, then you obey God and not the world. The, you know, as we look at this passage, there are other lies deceit, and sexual morality in this passage. And we must be aware of all of them. We must be aware of all of them. I have a story in my notes, which I'm not going to share. Some of you get my notes. You can read it later. It comes from Chuck Swindoll about a dysfunctional family. Um, you know, Swindoll points out, it's easier to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, than saying, if only I had later on. A few years ago, I was pastoring a funeral of a man who did not attend my church, but his daughter and grandchildren did attend my church. And we are meeting for the funeral, and we're meeting in my office going over things, and unfortunately and sadly, the family, the children and grandchildren, except for the one that attended my church, she was not part of it, she was just embarrassed, they just began arguing and lashing out with each other. I mean, so badly, I was quite concerned a real fight was going to break out there right in my office. Fortunately, they went out to the parking lot, but still I'm thinking, this is not a good situation. There's about to be a fight with a family in the church parking lot. And the only point of that story, and fortunately no blows came, and they all apologized to me a couple days later. The daughter who attended my church was in tears, extremely embarrassed by the whole situation. The thing about that is when family problems fester, they only get worse. And it takes a godly man, a man trying to follow Christ, a head of house, a father, and a mother if the man's not involved, or maybe a grandparent, somebody to step in and say, we need to restore these relationships. It's easier to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, than say, if only I had. And that's a key application here in addition to being present. Um, there's a poem that Chuck Swindoll actually shared, which I'm using. It's by John, John Greenleaf Whittier. John Greenleaf Whittier. And it's these. For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. I think that's a key application for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sure that many of us here may be being convicted. You're convicting some to restore relationships, 
to talk to somebody they haven't talked to in a long time. Maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe a niece or nephew, a grandchild, maybe their own children. And to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Lord God, you're convicting all of us, hopefully, to learn from David and be present with our children and grandchildren. You're convicting us to be present with our family members and friends our loved ones. You're convicted to us to be there, to be spiritual leaders, to, to be there. Lord God, I thank you that your word, the Bible, does not gloss over, does not gloss over the sins of, of your people. David was a man who was very godly and pursued many honorable and many good things and sought after you and was repentant, but he was not perfect in any way. Lord God, may we learn from this. And Lord God, may we follow you. Lord, the first relationship that needs restored, though, is our relationship with you. And if anyone here does not know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day where they believe that you died on the cross for their sins and rose again. May today be the day where they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe in you, trust in you, and commit to you. May today be the day where they firmly make the decision to be with you, Lord, in order to become like you and to learn and do all that you say. And then arrange their affairs around you. Lord God, help us all to arrange our affairs around you. Help us all to make you Lord. And not just be a fan of you, but you to be a follower of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. During the closing hymn, the altars are opened. If the Holy Spirit has prompted you and you would like to come forward and pray about something, if you come to the altar on the left, the right, my left, you're right. I don't want to get this mixed up. It's on the screen, okay? If you come to the altar on the right side, you can pray alone. If you just want to be alone and pray, come to the altar on the right side. Maybe some of you, though, you would like to come and pray, and you would like somebody to join you. To come to the altar on the left side. And one of our elders, Tim Burns, or anyone actually, could come up and pray with you. So if you want to pray alone, come to the altar on the right. If you want to pray with somebody else, come to the altar on your left. Of course, you can always sit and pray at your seat. Or maybe come to the front pew. Turn it over to Bill. Amen. This is all sentencing in our last, uh, first two verses of our last hymn. First, I've got a question. Who's on the Lord's side? Raise your hand. Praise God. Let's sing it, by the way.